Philippians 3, beginning at verse 1. This is God's holy and infallible word. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, whose glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, and as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But what, what, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And what's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's our reading this morning. We've seen already how pleased Paul is with this church in the Greek city of Philippi. Um, we've seen how he certainly thinks they're a church a healthy church. They're on the right track, so to speak, right? But for a letter to a church that Paul is generally pleased with, he uses some super harsh language in our text. And really, we haven't seen that yet in this book at all. He says, right, did you catch that? Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators. Can you imagine a pastor uh, today speaking like that about a group? I'm not sure a congregation would even stand for it, though, though sometimes people need to be disciplined and rebuked. Very harsh, strong language, and, and we want to unpack what's going on here. Like, why is he doing this? And, and as we go forward, uh, what we're going to see and find and discover is that this passage is about, it's about the heart and soul of our salvation. It's about the heart and soul of the Christian faith, of our faith. And we've got to be certain that we get this, that we get it in our minds, that we get it in our hearts. So talking about dogs, strong language, he's referring to people called Judaizers. The book of Acts, which records the history of the early church and the early church plants, um, tells us about some Jewish Christians in that early time of the, of the gospel going out who insisted that when Gentiles, 
Gentiles are non-Jewish people, that when they're saved, they need to be circumcised. In fact, a contingent of these folks, the Judaizers, marched to the young church at Antioch, not terribly far from Jerusalem, with that exact message, according to Acts 15.1. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And they were spreading this message around, apparently, to all these young churches. We know, if we know our Bibles, and uh, that circumcision was very important to God's Old Testament people, right? In Genesis 17, uh, God commanded it to Abraham as a sign of his covenant. And God told him this was to be done for generations to come. But Paul's very harsh language is because circumcision had become unnecessary with the coming of Jesus. At the very first church synod in Jerusalem, the leaders of the early church got together, discussed God's word as it was revealed, discussed the coming of Jesus, prayed, and they concluded that, the, that God had clearly given the Holy Spirit to Gentile believers, which means that that outward sign isn't necessary anymore. So this is a break with how it had been for God's people from Abraham forward. It's like 2,000 years. Even uncircumcised people, Gentiles, are truly the people of God if they know Jesus Christ. So these Judaizers, you know, they were just doing church, religion, the faith, as they always have been, right? Um, but things had clearly changed, and, and the church had recognized that, and they were going against that, that clear revelation of God to the church. And really, if you think about it, all along, it was made very clear, even in Old Testament times, that God cares about our hearts. And God looks at our heart, not outward things. But what happened again and again as the Old Testament went on, they, those people put so much confidence in that physical mark of circumcision that they felt they were secure in God, even if their hearts were far from God. And they were straying after other gods, like we read they often did. And so uh, the writers of the Old Testament and the prophets would remind God's people again and again that this physical right should be symbolic of something deeper, a deeper commitment. And it was called the circumcision of the heart. And that's what it was really about all along. And the Judaizers should have known that. After the golden calf incident, uh, the Lord says, circumcise your hearts. Don't be stiff-necked any longer. And also, God promised a day when he would circumcise the people's hearts and the hearts of their children. And that time of that type of circumcision in the heart had come for God's people with the coming of Jesus. Physical circumcision didn't have anything to do with salvation 
or the faith anymore. Paul is saying there's no assurance of belonging to God in outward things, like things that we do, things that we have, or things that are done to us, like circumcision was done to them. And in our verses, he gives as an example, uh, starting around 4 and 5, of himself as an example that these outward things do not make someone a child of God. Paul has quite the credentials. And he's saying if there's anyone who would be confident and should be confident because of outward stuff, it would be me. He gives us this detailed resume that would be super impressive credentials for that day. Circumcised on the eighth day, just like the Lord commanded Abraham. He was an Israelite, and even he belonged to the tribe of Benjamin. That was kind of a special tribe because it was the tribe of Israel's first king, Saul. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, and he probably meant by that, given that Jews were dispersed over that whole then-known world, over the Mediterranean, he yet stayed true to his Jewish roots. He spoke and he knew uh, the Hebrew language. Besides all that, he was a Pharisee, and they were known as, as those who very carefully, meticulously obeyed God and followed the law. And he was super passionate about it, too. He persecuted the church. So in short, he did everything and he did more than the Jewish law required. And his point is to tell the church that with regard to salvation, none of this gets him anywhere. And that brings us and strikes at the heart of the faith for all time, for all people. There's nothing that we have, there's nothing that we can do on our own that will bring us closer to God. And we shouldn't put any extra requirements on anybody else either. It's a friend of mine uh, from a while back, I'm going to call him John. He wasn't a Christian when I worked with him years ago, and as far as I know, he's still not. He was around 40 um, when I knew him. He's a really nice guy. Seriously, one of the nicest guys you'll ever, you'd ever meet. He had a very clean lifestyle. He didn't drink, I don't think at all. He didn't smoke. He didn't use bad language. He was so kind and gentle to others. Um, by the way, he acted in his speech. I remember that he had this very respectful and wonderful relationship with his father that I was really impressed with. Because uh, not everyone does, right? I knew he wasn't a believer, and, and so I would, from time to time, try to engage him about Jesus and ultimate matters. It turns out that, that John thought that when he died, God would accept him because he was a pretty good guy and he tried his best to love others. He was very conscious that he was a good guy and he tried to be that way um, and tried to have a clean lifestyle. All of that made him quite certain that he would be, you know, if there's a heaven, he would be there. But Paul would say, 
And God's word would say, as it does to us this morning, that's not how it works. Paul is saying, if my credentials, if my pristine living doesn't get me anywhere, well, then no one's got a chance. No one's record will get them anywhere. So, like Paul, you know, Paul was talking, and those were credentials really for Old Testament times. The Old Testament church, you know, that as we're transitioning into the New Testament church here, um, but in a different way than those specific reasons, a lot of us here might have reasons to boast, like Paul. We might say, boy, I've been going to church for a really long time. Maybe, and maybe even go to church even your whole life. You make weekly worship a priority. Uh, some even make twice a week a priority. That's a commitment, right? You've been a hard worker your whole life. You've been honest in your financial dealings, uh, whether you have your, your own business or just in terms of your, your taxes. You love your spouse. You're trying your best there. Uh, you bring your kids to church. You were baptized. You've gone maybe even to catechism and, and youth group. You've been on service projects. Maybe you've been on council, an elder or a deacon. Or you volunteered in the church in some way or the other. You pray for your church. You give not only your time, but your resources to the church as well. In fact, you know, when you're out and about at the store or the restaurant, you open the door for others. You're very polite. But as far as salvation goes, what God's word is telling us is that none of that counts, even a bit. You know, um, you apply, you, you have to provide uh, an application and sort of a resume for a job, right? for entering college, you could provide a detailed application for heaven. Like, list every good thing you've ever done. Paul's saying, you're not going to get into heaven on that basis. Very few of us would have credentials as good as Paul's, and everything he did, he says, counts for nothing. He calls it loss. He calls it rubbish. That's trash. The word is really much harsher than that, uh, but most Bible translations don't put it in because it's kind of a bad word. I'm going to say the word in a way that maybe some younger kids won't get. It, the word is dumb. The word for dumb. You know what that is, right? The old King James Version has always translated it that way. And that's, that's the literal thing. I consider all this dumb. So trash is putting it mildly. But that's how strongly Paul wants to emphasize this part of our faith that we can't earn for ourselves salvation uh, with good lives, with good deeds. And thank goodness, because we know deep down that there's a major problem with any good we try to do. There's sin through it all. Even the very best thing we could do, that action isn't perfect, and certainly our motives aren't 100% perfect. 
There's sin through all the good we do, and sin is totally unacceptable to a holy and righteous God. And day by day, over our lives, instead of getting closer to God by stacking up more good deeds, we're actually digging a, a deeper hole for ourselves. There was once a girl who grew up on a cherry orchard above Traverse City, Michigan. If you don't know Michigan or Traverse City, that's very far north in Michigan. In the Lower Peninsula, but very far north. Um, her parents were a bit old-fashioned, and they tended to overreact to her nose ring, the length of her skirts, and the music that she was listening to. They ground her a number of times, and that really, really upset her. I hate you, she screamed at her dad when he knocked on her door after the latest argument. And that night, she acts on a plan that she has gone over many times before in her mind. She runs away. She's only visited Detroit once on a youth group trip to watch the Tigers. Because of the newspaper reports about gangs and drugs and violence in Detroit, she figured that's going to be the last place my parents are ever going to look for me. Only her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride, buys her lunch, arranges a place for her to stay, and he gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. And she decides right then and there, she was right all along. Her parents were keeping her from all the fun. That good, fun life uh, continued for a month, two months, a year. The man with the big car, uh, she calls him Boss, he teaches her a few things men pay a premium for because she's underage. She lives in a penthouse, orders room service whenever she wants, and once in a while she thinks back about the folks back home, but their lives seem so quaint now that, that she can hardly even believe that she grew up there. She got a little scared when she saw her picture on the back of a milk carton with the headline, Have You Seen This Child? But now she's got blonde hair with all her makeup and, and body piercings. No one would mistake her for a child anymore. And plus, all of her friends are runaways too. No one's going to tell. After a year, the first signs of illness appeared. And she's blown away about how fast boss turns mean. He throws her out on the street without a penny. And she can't earn enough money to support her habit. By the time winter comes, she finds herself sleeping on metal grates outside of the big department stores. And, and one of those nights, all of a sudden, she feels like a little girl again. She's lost. She's cold. She starts to cry. She has no money. She's starving. And she shivers as she's trying to pull up more newspapers to cover herself then suddenly, uh, an image of May in Traverse City flashes into her mind. There's a million cherry trees blooming all at once. Uh, her golden retrievers there as they run through the groves. 
Why did I leave? My dog at home eats better than I do. And sobbing, she knows that, that more than anything else, she wants to go home. Some of us, maybe in, in one way or the other, can identify with that girl in our own life. Maybe most of us have never traveled that far from the right path and, and home to really identify much at all. But either way, every single one of us is right there with her on that same level on a department store grape in the cold, starving with newspapers trying to cover ourselves up, far from father, far from home, lost, no hope. And if we think that we're any better than that girl on her own, then we're acting like the Judaizers. We're confident in ourselves, depending on our own credentials to get it in with God. But the fact is not one person in this church is closer or farther away to God than you are, no matter what you or, or they may have done. And, and to those who have a self-righteousness like that, to think that we're somehow better than others because of how we were raised, because of our lifestyle, because of our pedigree, because of our goodness, Paul says to people who have self-righteousness like that, you dogs, you evil men. Three straight phone calls, and she reaches the answer machine each time. And the third time, she finally leaves a message. Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way, and it will be there about midnight tomorrow. And if you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on the bus until it reaches Canada or something. And as she's on the bus, on the trip, she realizes there are some flaws in her plan. What if her parents are not even in town? And, or what if they just missed the call? Even if they are home, they probably wrote her off as dead long ago and she should have given them some time to overcome the shock before just showing up. And then, as the bus ride continues, she starts uh, rehearsing the speech that she's going to have for her father. Dad, I'm sorry. I was so wrong. It's not your fault. It's mine. Can you ever forgive me? And her throat is tightening as she rehearses this apology. The bus rolls into the station in Traverse City. She checks herself in a little compact mirror, smooths her hair. She looks at the tobacco stains on her fingertips and wonders if her parents are going to notice that, <clears throat> if they're even there. She walks into the terminal. No idea what to expect, right? But nothing could have prepared her. She could not have imagined what she sees. There, at the terminal, are a group of 40 brothers and sisters, uncles and aunts, great-uncles and aunts, cousins, and even her grandma, too. They're all wearing goofy party hats, blowing noisemakers, and uh, taped across the wall of the terminal is a huge banner that says, Welcome home! And out of that crowd, 
Her dad comes. She stares at him through hot tears in her eyes and, 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 and coming down. And she begins this memorized speech. And he interrupts her and says, hush, child. It's no time for apologies. You're going to be late for the party. A banquet's waiting for you at home. Friends, God our Father reaches out and embraces you and me, despite the fact that we're so far from home, so far from Him. Yet, He accepts us. In Jesus, we see that. God broke relationship with His only child on the cross for a relationship with us. And that all happens through faith in Jesus Christ. It all happens through knowing Jesus. God looks at Jesus' righteousness and sees us. If we but recognize our great need and lostness and believe in him, knowing Jesus is what we need. And that's why Paul says, I consider everything a loss compared with the surpassing Greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's because our relationship with Jesus is everything. Without him, there is eternal rejection by God. In Jesus, we are eternally accepted. And it's really not that good we do is bad. It's just that it can't save us. It's just that what we do is a response to God after he saves us. And anything good we do is nothing. It's trash in comparison to something. It's in comparison to someone. And that someone is Jesus, who is great and holy and beautiful. That's how far beyond us he is. Do we know, do you know the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus in your life? Jesus was at the center of Paul's life. Other things, things he calls the things of the flesh, were nothing, rubbish, compared to Jesus. His confidence was in him. Where's your confidence this morning? When you stand at heaven's gates one day, the only resume you need, uh, the only credentials you need, and what God will graciously give us when we humbly ask for it is the perfect life, sacrificial death, and the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. In him, in love, the Father embraces us and welcomes us to that great banquet in heaven with all the lost children who he has found, even each one of us. Let's pray. Oh God, we pray that you would impress upon our hearts and our lives, very simply, our Lord Jesus Christ. His atoning, sacrificial love for us. Oh God, help us, uh, like Paul, to know him more. Help us, oh God, to put stuff that, that we make so much of, 
that we spend so much attention on understand and put it and keep it in its place. The superficial stuff, the outward stuff, the things of the flesh, like Paul says, are nothing. Jesus, you are everything. May you be our all in all. May increasingly we cling to you alone as our only hope of salvation. Work your word, Lord, here in Philippians 3 into our hearts and may it have a tremendous results in our lives. In your name, Jesus. Amen.